I get to see it, but you guys don't um, often, that we really do have a great bunch of students. Um, not just those that get to stand on stage, but those like Bryce, who just sit right there. Um, but we really, really do have a great group of kids. Uh, second of all, can I let you into some insight into my brain? Um, this morning, finishing up the sermon, thinking through things, and I get the text saying that, you know, no kids worship live, no grandma's uh, uh, house, and that's great. That's, that's awesome to give them a break. But what, what started running through my mind about two minutes into that first song was, we're talking a lot about Song of Solomon today, and I don't know if we've got kids men for this morning. How much should I cut out? <laughs> but fortunately, kids have left. So let's talk about Song of Solomon. No, um, I, I'm so excited for today. Um, first of all, happy almost New Year. Um, I, I realized that um, usually I preach in January, but the calendar worked out. I actually get one in December this year. Even better is we're going to continue in our Christmas series. And I know what you're saying. Didn't we just talk about Jesus last week? Didn't we just do the whole Christmas thing? Isn't this over yet? Yes, we did talk about Jesus last week. No, it's not over yet. And yes, we're continuing in our series. So, um, actually, it's funny because in my family, we don't finish celebrating Christmas until after the new year. Um, we have this little ceramic classic um, um, nativity scene. And, um, you know, it's usually sitting up on the mantle. We'll have everything out. But I refuse to put the wise men up there yet. And in the book of Matthew, I have plenty of evidence that says the wise men didn't even come on Jesus' birthday. So I choose to make sure that my family knows we don't put the wise men out yet. In fact, what we do is um, there's, this, uh, there's, there's a big fancy word called epiphany. And what epiphany is is in the liturgical church calendar, Epiphany is the time where we reflect on the wise men and the meaning of the gifts that the wise men bring to the baby Jesus that we, that we do see in Matthew. And the liturgical calendar doesn't do that until January 6th. So there. <laughs> what that does mean for those of us who love Christmas is that you still have seven days to go. So enjoy that. All of that to say is yes, we're still in our Christmas series. <laughs> um, but what we're going to look at this morning is the book of, uh, not the book of, the man Solomon. So if you guys would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3. And just sort of put your finger right there. Put your finger right there. Um, because Solomon is incredible. I've really enjoyed studying him over the last few weeks. Solomon is, um, his story can be found in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings as well as the last chapter of 1 Chronicles through the ninth chapter of 2 Chronicles. And he's credited with three books in the Old Testament wisdom literature. That's a lot. But today what I want us to do is to really hone in on Solomon's wisdom. And that's kind of where we're going to start, because I want us to see four things. Number one, how Solomon received his wisdom. Number two, what that wisdom is that he received. Number three, what he teaches us about wisdom. And the last thing is, is I want us to understand how Christ is wisdom for us. So that's kind of the map that we're going. I'm not cool. I don't have slides like Mike. So I usually try to give you guys the, the outline so you can follow along that way. But um, that being said, let's jump in. Let's jump into 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord 
by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have to show great kindness. You, I'm sorry, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father, David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servants a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between what is right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased with Solomon that he had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your life you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you long life. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path, God. Help us to understand it and help us to live in it. And may it change us, may it form us, I pray in your son's name. Amen. So this morning's passage follows right after Solomon is anointed as king and the death of his father, David. And, and before his death in chapter 2, David charged Solomon to be faithful to God. And we see in chapter 3 that he's, that he's in the process of doing that. Verse 3 says that he loved God and listened to his father's advice to be faithful. And while in Gibeon, God appears to Solomon in a dream, offering him the chance to ask for anything. Now, I, just real quick, put yourself right there. Put yourself in Solomon's shoes. God has literally just asked you to a tell him what you want, anything. What bl should blow our mind is that what Solomon does is he asks for wisdom to govern the people and to know what is right and what is wrong. And verse 10 says that God was absolutely pleased with Solomon's answer. And in, his, in fact, he was so pleased that he gave him everything he didn't ask for. You know, I, I came across something this week in studying this that sort of fascinated me about this interaction between God and Solomon. It's simply this, that Solomon's response should bring us back immediately to Genesis 3 in the garden. Adam and Eve lived in the garden as its caretakers, as its rulers, God tells them to have dominion over it all. And as the earth's rulers, they had a choice. 
They could rule over God's earth using the wisdom of God. Or they could live by their own wisdom. And as we know, for Adam and Eve, they chose their own wisdom because they thought that God was hiding something good from them. They thought that they needed to figure it out because they were convinced that they couldn't trust God to show them what was best. They're choosing life by their own wisdom, causing fracturing of relationships between God and man and man and man. But Solomon was faced with a very similar choice. God had made him king, ruler over God's chosen people, and he had that choice. But instead, he chose to ask for God's wisdom. Solomon saw his need for God and his wisdom, and so he asked for it. In a very real way, it's like Solomon is standing right there in the garden and was faced with the same choice that Adam and Eve was faced with, to trust God's wisdom or to make it on my own. And Solomon asked for wisdom from God, and it was given to him. So what is this wisdom? What is this wisdom that, that, that Solomon was asking for? And there, we, can, we can ask, uh, just take a huge poll and realize that there are tons of kinds of wisdom out there. But in all honesty, they boil down to, to two. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. You know, uh, James chapter 3 actually characterizes the wisdom this way. He says, uh, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You see, James is, is, is separating wisdom into two categories. The wisdom of the world, or, or as James says it, earthly, is our own wisdom. It says that it's what we think, what we feel, what we guess is best as the way to rule. We need to figure it out for ourselves how it works. We need to find truth on our own. But you see, wisdom of the world is, is one that thinks of self first. It, it, James 3.14 actually says this. It says that um, it is a wisdom that is at the, at the very heart looking out for itself at all costs. James calls that demonic. That's, that's strong words, demonic, full of jealousy, selfish ambition. And, and Solomon had this in 1 Kings 2, because when, he, um, it, when it came time for him to consolidate power and ensure his rule, he did it by having anyone who threatened his throne killed. That's wisdom of the world. That's saying, how can I protect myself? It would make sense if we wanted to assure that we had something to remove anything and anyone that would prevent us from having that. That makes sense. But it's self-serving wisdom. One that puts myself above everyone else. But the wisdom of God, or, or as, as James says, the wisdom from above, is from God. It's a wisdom of design. Now get this. It's, it's this wisdom that says, God designed the world, he understands how it works, and in his mercy, in his love, he's revealing it to us through his word, using people like Solomon, or, and, and culminating in Christ, our perfect wisdom, 
It's, it's a wisdom that is pure and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. The wisdom of God is humble and just and God-glorifying. It looks up to God and it looks out towards others. This was the wisdom that Solomon received in 1 Kings 3. In fact, later in the chapter, we get to see our first example of Solomon using that wisdom in justice. I'll let you guys read that one at the end of chapter 3. Go home and read that tonight and ask, how was God showing, or Solomon showing God's justice to these women? But another thing I want us to mention before we move on from what the wisdom is, is that I kind of want to make a, a clarifying thing, because I want to make sure we understand that wisdom is different than knowledge. And here's what I mean. Both start with the fear of the Lord, which we'll talk about later, but they're different. I've got a loose analogy, so please bear with me. I hope it works. Over the years, I've learned to like baking a lot. Um, I've also learned that the recipe in baking is not a suggestion. If I don't put baking soda in the dish, the dish is not going to come out right. Knowledge is the recipe. It gives us instruction on how to make the dish. We can know the steps. We can know the process. And that's super important. But it's not the whole picture. Wisdom is doing what the recipe says to do. Does that make sense? I can memorize a recipe, but if I don't follow what it says, what's the use, right? The wisdom of God is the same thing. You and I can know Scripture. We can memorize it. And for example, the Ten Commandments. We can memorize the Ten Commandments. And that's awesome. That's right. That's good. That's what God calls us to do. But wisdom obeys them. Wisdom obeys. And so God revealed to Solomon how his world worked and how we are designed to live rightly in his world. God gave Solomon all of the wisdom he could ask for and then even more. And God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, inspired Solomon to write it down for us. We have a great pool of wisdom to, to pull from. I mean, think about it. The book of Proverbs, the pinnacle of wisdom in the Old Testament, it's actually addressed to and written for teenagers to start, as a starting point to learn how to live the life that is a wise life and honors God. Or, or the, the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, just depending on what, what your Bible says, um, is an incredible picture of God's design for sex and marriage. It paints this picture of an anticipation that trusts God's design for sex within marriage and the benefits of a committed, lifelong relationship with one another. Again, wisdom in marriage and intimacy. Ecclesiastes is a reflection on life. Solomon reflects on all that he has tried to do his entire life to make himself feel better, to find meaning, and to have fun. And at the end, he, he says that he uses this word, that it's just a vapor. It's just this idea of you think that this thing is going to fill you, and then you're empty. You're left feeling empty, like trying to catch fog on 19 as you're going up. You can't. You open your hand, and it's gone. In the end, he sums it all up by saying this. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
God chose to use Solomon to give us this, these wise guides and to place them in his word, our Bibles, as good counsels. Not only these, but 63 other books as well that he uses to reveal himself, he chooses to reveal us, and his world. Today's the last day of 2023. Tomorrow's 2024. I don't know if you guys knew that yet. I pray that for us that we commit to not only know God's word in 2024 and beyond, but that we are wise by doing what it says. How do we start, though? I think Solomon gives us great insight on how to do that. And so that's the next thing I want us to look at is, is what Solomon teaches us about wisdom. And I don't know about you guys, um, the hardest thing for me about starting something is literally where to start. A college term paper, I would stare at a blank page for a couple of days before I could figure it out. Or, or like a house project. I think before we started working on our house, I had to stare at the project for about two days. Or fixing your child's twisted yo-yo. You ever looked at that and just been like, what did you do? Where do I start with this? But God, through Solomon, gave us a perfect place to start receiving God's wisdom. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes both written by Solomon, tell us that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. And would you believe it that the rest of God's word agrees? Look at this. So like in the book of Job, Job 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Psalms 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life. The apostle Paul even, in the book of Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again in 2 Corinthians, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Even the author of Hebrews throws in his two cents. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And Jesus instructing his disciples, and do not fear those that will kill, who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. If we want to be wise, it starts with having the right view of God. We need to live under the fear of God. And, and I'll be the first to admit, it took me a long time to understand this. It took me a long time to figure out what this meant. And I'm not perfect. I still don't fully understand it. But I've got five little points to maybe help us process what it means to fear the Lord. And we're going to start here. First, two things that fear the, of the Lord isn't. So these are two things that fear of the Lord is not. Fear of the Lord does not mean that you're scared of God. Someone who's scared of something has something to hide. Think about Adam and Eve. When they sinned, what was the first thing that they did? They hid, Right? They ran and hid because they were scared of that God would find them out. But here's the beauty. As Christ followers, ones saved by God's grace, we have nothing to be afraid of. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees our failures and loves us in spite of them. Fearing God isn't hiding from him. It's actually leaning into him because he cares for us. The second thing, the fear of the Lord is not a checklist. It is not a checklist. Our, our Western culture today has done this incredible uh, 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 
thing where it's, a ver it's very good at convincing us that we always need to be doing something. Am I doing enough? Are my kids doing enough in sports? Are they doing enough in academics, theater, extracurricular? Do I have enough friends? Am I, is my social calendar full enough? Enough, enough, enough. I think we've let it seep into the church now too. Am I doing enough for my faith? Am I good enough? Am I active enough? Am I righteous enough? The simple answer may surprise you, no. You are not enough on your own, but Christ has made you enough because he is enough. Your faith is God's doing. Your, 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 your life is his work. It's his righteousness that you receive. And God wants your heart in the correct position because that's exactly what the fear of the Lord is. It's a heart position. And so what we're going to do is that over the next couple of minutes, we're going to take 1 Kings 3 to help us understand, understand three things that the fear of the Lord is. So three things that the fear of the Lord is. Number one is a heart of reverence for who God is. Look at verse 6 with me. 1 Kings 3, verse 6. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. You see that? Solomon recognizes that God is God. He caused David to be king. He put Solomon on the throne of David. Solomon recognizes God as supreme. He's the author. He's the director of the world. Church, if we want to have a right heart of fearing the Lord, we must recognize that God is God and you are not. God is the maker. God is the sustainer. God is the ruler and the owner of us. Our lives do not belong to us. Not one of us in this room caused himself into being. It's because of God. To fear the Lord, we have to have the heart of reverence for who God is. The second thing, we have to have a heart of respect. The heart of respect, like a servant to a master. Look at verse 8. Solomon says, Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or to number. Solomon recognizes that they are God's people that he is supposed to lead, not his own. They're God's. Look at how he says it. Your servant among the people that you have chosen. He knows that he's just a caretaker of the master's people. Solomon is placing himself under the authority of God. His heart is one of humility. If we want the right heart of fearing the Lord, it needs to be one of humble respect, like a servant to their master. And that step, that first step, it takes us admitting that there is someone greater than us whom we ought to submit to. The third thing is this. 
we have to have a heart of humble obedience towards God. Humble obedience. Verse 9. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? This, this is like the, the juiciest verse when I think about comparing Solomon's request to Adam and Eve. Solomon asked that God would give him the ability to see good and evil, right and wrong. Adam and Eve looked for it with their own, with their own minds, their own eyes. They thought they had found wisdom, that God was hiding it from them, and that they were going to get it for themselves. But Solomon came to the author and master for wisdom. He asked for knowledge and understanding so that he might obey God. So how do we develop a heart of obedience? The night that Jesus was betrayed in the garden, I want us to think about that. Before he was arrested, before he was crucified, he was asking God that the suffering that he was about to experience wouldn't be so. But at the end of his prayer, he said these incredible words, these words of obedience. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. A heart of obedience means we give up our desires, our dreams, our feelings, our urges, and embraces God's will and do it. Because we trust that God's will, God's wisdom, is perfect and right design. But lastly, here's what I want us to turn to. Our, our, our final, my final point for tonight is, is how is Christ wisdom for us. Solomon, in all of his great God-given wisdom, all of his wealth, all of his fame, would appear to be God's absolute chosen king. And, and don't get me wrong, God did set him on the throne of Israel. God did give him that responsibility. But like every other person in Jesus' family tree, we know that Solomon failed. Many of us know that um, Solomon was not only famous for being wise, but also being the husband of 700 wives and, well, familiar with 300 concubines. And actually, <laughs> this, week, I, this, past, this past week, I did the math. Solomon reigned for 40 years, and he married his first, first wife right around the time that he, was, that he was brought onto the throne. And so 700 wives over 40 years... If you spread that out evenly, that's a wife or a marriage every 21 days. I mean, this is mind-blowing, right? I can imagine having that many weddings, let alone trying to manage that many uh, marriages. I mean, Solomon was well-known. And <laughs> let's just say, I should say, stop and say right there that God's word is not condoning this. In fact, 1 Kings tells us that his marriages were actually the source of his downfall. Solomon allowed his many wives to pull him away from worshiping and obeying God. And because he allowed his wives to persuade him, he no longer feared the Lord. Though he had been given the gift of wisdom, he was not wise with it. God told him that his kingdom would begin to fall. And throughout much of the rest of the Old Testament, through the history books and the prophets, 
we see that fall and eventual exile of God's people. But the good news is that God promises a rescuer, a great king that would return to save his people. And that king, of course, was Jesus. Not only was he greater and the greater king, but where Solomon failed to follow wisdom, Jesus prevailed. I, I, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, I, I, um, one, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says this, and I'm using the NLT because I think it just really captures what, what, what uh, Paul is saying. He says this, he says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him, Christ, the wis- to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. You see, where Solomon was given more wisdom than anyone had ever seen, Christ is all wisdom embodied. So where Solomon failed, where we fail, Jesus succeeded. Jesus succeeded. God had shown his wisdom through the wisdom of the Bible. As he, he has shown us how the world works. He has given us his expectations for us as humans. He has shown us what we ought to be doing. And for us to follow that would be right and good. And that would mean a right relationship with God. But God also, in his love and mercy, knew that we can never live up to that because the sin that holds us captive. The only way out of that captivity is to break the hold that sin had on us. The only way that that can happen is the perfect sacrifice for our sin, which is exactly what Jesus did. He lived the perfect life, embodied perfect wisdom, lived the life we were designed to live. And then he died the death that we deserve so that we can have life. For those of us who are Christ followers, those of us who are saved by God's grace, that means that God joined us to Christ, who is perfect wisdom. He took on our sin so that we could take on his righteousness. Jesus made us right with God. When God sees us, he no longer sees us as we were, sin-stained and dirty. He sees us now pure and holy, wrapped in this blanket of Jesus' righteousness. Christ has set us free from sin so that we can joyfully throw off the stuff that hinders us and run freely into the fear of the Lord. Living the way that we were actually designed to live. Will we do that? Will we commit to know God and to fear the good God who made us, who loves us, and paves a way for us to have a right relationship with him? Will we do that? I have two charges for us. First one is this. My brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who are saved by God's grace, will you walk in fear of the Lord this year? Will you not only know God's word, but will you be wise and do it? Because by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, you can. The second charge is this. To those who maybe have never heard of God's grace, but only maybe you have heard of God in this negative connotation. My friend, there is a weight on you that you were not designed to carry. Know that God is good. 
full of mercy. Submit to him. Receive forgiveness for your sins and live in the freedom that God offers you. It is good. Do it. Let's pray. God, you are good. And your mercy is, is incredibly full. God, we were never designed to, to carry the burden of trying to figure out wisdom on our own. We were never designed to carry the burden of, of living life on our own, Lord. You designed us to live in the fear of you, under your wing, in you. God, that's, that's where wisdom starts, true wisdom. Father, I pray that this year that we would begin to catch that and to live under your wisdom. I pray in your son's name. Amen. <laughs>